when we decide to go theatrical, we go. And we go into theaters because we love going into theaters. And we know that audiences, I do think this, I am honestly of the belief that if an audience sees that a film is being held out away from its streaming service, that they believe, wow, this studio must really believe in this film if they're going to hold it out that long. And it's mm -hmm. true. That's how we do feel about our film. So, yeah, poor things, I'm really, really happy about that film. Very, We're very proud of that film. It's a unique and brave story. <laughs> This is the Box Office Podcast. I am Rebecca Polly, Deputy Editor of Box Office Pro, the Pulse of Theatrical Exhibition, joined here today by our Chief Analyst Sean Robbins and Analyst Chad Kennerk. How are you doing today, guys? Doing good. Not too bad. Not yeah. too bad. Yeah. Anything fun over the weekend? I had family in town, so I wasn't able to make it out to the movies, but... Just a little bit of Christmas preparation. It's kind of that time of year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I babysat my niece, so I was busy running around playing hide and seek. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll be talking about Christmas a little bit later on in the episode, specifically the films coming out around that period. I know, you know, my family is one of those. We always like to go to the theater on Christmas. It's a tradition. So Sean, definitely want to pick your brain on that one. We will also be speaking later in this episode in our feature interview with Frank Rodriguez, who for over 10 years was the head of distribution at Searchlight Pictures over, uh, I believe, early in November. So within the last few months, he went over to become general sales manager at Apple. But before that happened, we interviewed him about Poor Things from Searchlight Pictures out this weekend in, in limited release from Searchlight. The way he spoke about the film, I mean, I already wanted to see it, but it definitely sounds intriguing if Sean maybe a bit of a, a hard sell on the mainstream front yeah it's definitely going to be an interesting one I think especially being Searchlight and they've kind of had some of the more prolific prestige award season releases the last couple of years I'm thinking back to Banshees of Ina Sheeran last year this is kind of in maybe a similar corridor there but the yeah, just that entire space is there's a lot going on there lately. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll, uh, we'll break that down a little bit later on in the episode. But first, this week's box office, Chad, can you give us a rundown? Because uh, in the top five, we have two new films and three holdovers, I believe, right? Yeah, number one at the box office, Renaissance, a film by Beyonce. It took an estimated twenty one million over the weekend, and it was the highest domestic box office gross for a film opening on the post Thanksgiving holiday weekend in the last 20 years. So since the last samurai and of course, Taylor Swift is still holding the number one spot in IMAX, but it was the second biggest IMAX global opening weekend for a musical act film, a concert or documentary. And internationally, the film is expected to take in an estimated 6.4 million in 94 markets, but there's still a couple major markets to open, Brazil, Italy, and Spain. And then we have a holdover in number two, The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, 14.5 million. So that's a 50% drop from last week, but still kind of exceeding some of our expectations there. Yeah. Sean, what's your take on this? Because it's still like obviously in its third week, it's making less money than The Hunger Games films did on their third week, which was always expected and not not a bad thing because those were much bigger films but it seems like the word of mouth is really helping this one 
Yeah, it definitely is. And I think the biggest analog here is is the first Fantastic Beasts movie, which had a very similar release window. And it was coming a few years after its main franchise. It ended. It was a prequel and it opened well below that franchise, but it actually ended up generating better word of mouth than was expected. And it had good holds throughout the 2016 holiday season. Now, Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes is kind of doing the same exact thing. And it's interesting to me, especially because it looks like it's now the movie out of three or four that opened in November that really leaned on, if not heavily catered toward female audiences. This is the one that's standing out the most so far. Yeah, absolutely. That's one I, I'm meaning to get out and see. Also, Chad, I know you and, and myself, we both want to get out and see the third place finisher, Godzilla Minus One. It came out in Japan and back in November. So far, it's earned $23.1 million there. And just this past week, it came out domestically, coming in at third place with $11 million on 2,308 screens. So that as well, kind of coming in higher than our predictions. My initial thing on Godzilla minus one first and foremost foreign films are just really challenging to project in terms of not only what they can achieve at the box office but also in terms of how many exhibitors are going to be willing to book them and it's becoming a little bit more predictable nowadays just by the nature of seeing a consistency in in well-performing foreign releases and this had been consistently trending you know similar to if not ahead of films like one piece film red kind of the dragon ball z sort of comp is is a little bit fair even though that's anime and this is live action it's kind of all we have to go on at times yeah. so there was shin godzilla a few years back but yeah. that was that was an event release right i mean it didn't right. have the full wide release. right right and this one had early access showings as well which it's never entirely clear are those going to be counted as part of the weekend are those going to be counted separately being a, you know, not from a major studio, there's never kind of a guarantee of how that's counted. In this case, clearly with the 11 million, they were included in the weekend haul. So, but either way, that's still such a great result. Yeah. A couple other uh, international films to talk about in a few minutes, but before that, Chad, can you close out the top five for us? Number four, we had Trolls Band Together, a 57% drop there at 7.6 million. And then just under that at number five, Wish at 7.4 million, a 62% drop. I think the biggest surprise for me is that Napoleon is not in the top five. It actually landed at number six, just under Wish. Sean, curious about your reaction to the hold here on Wish. Yeah, this is, you know, as mentioned, this is steeper than Disney usually sees with their post-Thanksgiving drops and honestly kind of the new normal for them right now. This is a, an era where streaming is first and foremost for a lot of families. If a movie isn't generating that kind of must-see status to take out the family and spend money on tickets and popcorn, and that's that's just a reality, especially in, ter- in Disney's case, because unlike most other studios, they have this very popular and and relatively affordable streaming service at home that a lot of people have been trained to expect releases like Wish to be available. Even if it's a few months after, it's still going to impact that initial interest. So I this Disney has really put themselves in a challenging position here when they don't have a film that connects. Yeah, I mean on on that note with Disney Plus, I mean, given the fact that this did not have a particularly mild drop. Given the fact that we had the holiday corridor coming up, a lot of kids being out of school, a lot of families kind of hunkering down and enjoying the holidays. I don't think 
does Disney doesn't really have another major release on the calendar the rest of this year. Could you, you know, educated guests, are they just, they might put this on streaming early. I would think that's a possibility, right? Never say never. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 it would certainly fit their Encanto strategy two years ago, but that was obviously still peak COVID times, or at least during the Omicron wave during the end of that year. But it's tough to say. I I think leadership is really trying to figure out how to balance fixing their short-term problems, and which is one of those now, versus beginning their course correction for their long-term future. And and as much as Bob Iger and, and everybody else has been talking about that publicly, that puts Wish in, in an interesting position. Do they go ahead and, and put it on streaming for the holidays? Or is this where they maybe start to back off of that type of thinking? We'll see. And stop throwing money into the money pit that Disney Plus has <laughs> right. turned into. We actually have a new, a couple other films in, in the top 10 that I wanted to bring up. Uh, a film I hadn't heard of at number seven, Animal, an Indian Hindi language action thriller, 6.1 million opening, actually making it only the second highest Indian Hindi language action thriller of the year because back in February we had Pathan. Then uh, down at number eight, we have Angel Studios of The Shift and nine at uh, John Rue's Silent Night, which did not make much of a impression at three million. Hopefully that's something that as Christmas approaches, given that it is Christmas themed, we're going to see it kind of gather that word of mouth. But Sean, any thoughts? I was surprised to see this on the calendar uh, from Angel Studios, The Shift. Like it looks like a, a sci-fi type of thing. And yet Genre-wise, they're all over the place, you know, documentary based on a true story drama, sci-fi, and yet they all seem to hit if on a more, you know, on a smaller level, definitely than the major studios. Yeah, they've really pinpointed a part of the theatrical market that the industry has always had a little bit of a blind spot for, and that's faith-based crowds. Granted, we've seen faith-based movies do well, especially over the last 10 or 15 years, but I think what Angel in particular is doing with this and After Death, the documentary you mentioned, and of course, Sound of Freedom, one of the biggest movies of the year by any studio's uh, accounting, what they're doing is they're diversifying the types of movies. And the shift in particular, you mentioned it. I think it looks like a sci-fi movie. It is very much a sci-fi movie, but at its core, it's meant to be kind of a loose interpretation of the Book of Job. So it's still kind of leaning on the faith-based grassroots church crowd, but putting a, a different face on it. And it's combined with their crowdfunding strategies it's it's really interesting and i'm i'll be fascinated to see like what's the longevity of that type of campaign mm -hmm. something I'm, I'm curious about is i know the faith-based market really does not historically tend to buy tickets in advance it's a lot of walk-up traffic so i guess from your side of things it makes it especially difficult to predict what box office is going to be do you see that changing or is that just something that movie theaters are just going to have to deal with for the foreseeable future. They're not really going to have a good idea of what these faith-based movies are going to do until they come out. Yeah, it's it's certainly distributor dependent. And I think if we're talking about something like now Angel Studios has a following, so it, there kind of becomes a consistency, a pattern. So maybe, you know, the Kendrick brothers who have produced a number of films, they've worked with Kingdom Story Company and Lionsgate, Jesus Revolution, like kind of Movies that have some sort of name attached to them that's that's a draw within the, those communities, that begins to help. But it's certainly still, you know, very different than, than a traditional Hollywood release. So it's, it's a very movie by movie, case by case basis. 
on the opposite end of the spectrum from faith-based films out this upcoming weekend, we have some Searchlight Pictures' Poor Things, a film that executive Frank Rodriguez in our feature interview said makes Yorgos Lanthimos' The Favorite look like a G-rated picture. <laughs> it uh, certainly and, uh, does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sean, I mean, we don't know the screen count for this one. It's unashamedly out there, let's say. Can you give us any kind of estimate as to, you know, broad strokes, what we might expect from this weekend? I mean, it's a little early. Everything kind of depends on that screen count. It's officially listed as limited. And the unfortunate reality of our industry is lingo has different meanings. Yeah, limited could be anything from... 20 theaters... It could be 500 theaters. Usually once you get past 500, a studio is going to call it moderate or semi-wide. So I, I would think it, it probably in this case, Poor Things is, is going to be around or below that threshold. At the same time, though, we've seen in the past where during the release week, there can be a change in thinking, especially if there aren't a lot of other major films opening. And that's the case this weekend. We very, you know, very notably don't have a Beyonce movie we, and we're still a week out from Wonka. This is going to be a very slow weekend, so it's kind of a good opportunity for something like Poor Things to maybe grab more screens than it traditionally would. So that's kind of why I'm fascinated to see where the numbers stack up once theaters have have really started booking their final screen counts by the middle of the week. The other major, although we again, not sure of, of screen count coming out this weekend, I'm interested to hear your take on The Boy and the Heron from Hayao Miyazaki, obviously a living legend in the field of animation. He said this is his last film, but he said he's retiring like five times before and he can never make a six. So we don't know if this is his last one, but this has been, it got a ton of buzz on the festival circuit. Reviews are amazing. I think Miyazaki is a director who maybe has connected with younger generations. I mean, kids growing up who are maybe in their 20s today have grown up with films like Howl's Moving Castle or Princess Mononoke. Again, we don't know the screen count. Do you expect that maybe we'll see this crack the top 10? Yeah, I definitely think it'll it'll rank pretty high this weekend. Again, not a lot of releases out there, but it also has the fan base of Miyazaki. It has the Studio Ghibli brand name, which has, has been proven you know, pretty well for specialty releases over the years, but their highest opening weekend is 6.4 million, The Secret World of Arietti in 2012. So yeah. it's been a while. They're being distributed by G Kids in this case. And G Kids is a film that distributes like wonderful international animated films. Most of them get Oscar nominations. I think probably most of them that get Oscar nominations, in my opinion, should have won, but whatever. But yeah, they are. It's a small team. Right. And that's very different from studio, the studio's earlier days when it was often either Disney distributing the film or in a lot of cases, Fathom Events. And but this appears to be a more traditional release, you know, playing the whole weekend. And of course, it has IMAX that will help out. So I definitely expect it to. I don't want to put a number on it just yet. It's it's one of those that we just quite simply aren't forecasting for cautious reasons. But I would probably expect a location count at least 1500, maybe upwards of 2000. We'll see where it goes from there. But, you know, all, all said, it's, it's definitely one of the films that I think will stand out in the top 10 this weekend. But yeah, Sean, given that we do have a, a slow weekend this upcoming weekend, I wanted to kind of get your updated expectations for some of the major releases over the holiday corridor, specifically Aquaman and Wonka. Wonka has started screening. The reactions have been, I, I think it's 
fair to say, like surprisingly positive, which it's directed by Paul King, who did the Paddington movies. Paddington 2 is like the most perfect movie ever made. We shouldn't have doubted the man. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> this must be increasing your estimation of what the film's going to open to. It certainly helps. It's fascinating to talk about Wonka because, especially with the positive reviews now, it brings into question what the audience reception will be because this movie is not being marketed as a musical and it very much has musical sequences in it. So we're kind of in that position now of really looking at the movie as, you know, it's IP driven. It's generationally familiar with parents and kids. It's going to be relatively lighthearted and comedic, which is perfect for the holidays. I'm going to have relatively little competition. And that too. Mm-hmm. And that's going to help it stand. And it reminds me, I think a lot of people kind of maybe think of something like Jumanji a few years ago, but even that opened in a market where there was a Star Wars movie. I'm kind of looking even further back, 2006, Night at the Museum was the big Christmas movie in a a time when there just weren't a lot of big event movies out that year. Wonka reminds me of that in a lot of ways. So if it connects with, you know, parents and kids of all ages, I definitely see it having potential to very, very possibly maybe a $200 million plus domestic movie. It's hard to put a ceiling on it just because of that musical nature and the fact that it's not being heavily marketed. That'll be the most fascinating thing to watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely uh, looking forward to this one more now than I was a week ago. And Aquaman, I've heard nothing. Has anyone have you heard anything as, as to the quality? Is to any reactions from any screeners? I mean, I, I honestly, you see the trailer for it when you, when you go to the cinemas. I'm, I'm not hearing a lot by way of buzz recently. And the marketing right. should be kicking up pretty soon right yeah yeah this is i mean unfortunately it's it's just kind of one of those movies that at least in terms of on my own radar has felt like an oncoming box office misfire and that's partly on its own merits you know it's been five years since the first film i think it's box office performance was a little bit inflated at the time in terms of they're just not being you know a big movie out there and Jason Momoa was a big draw, but at the same time, the entire, I don't want to call it a genre. I think comic book movies touch into multiple genres, but that palette, that canvas has changed dramatically and people are way more selective. And especially with a lot of fans showing their disappointment or at least their lack of interest in DC until it's rebooted with, you know, performances by The Flash and Blue Beetle this year and Shazam, DC is, you know, not unlike Marvel, but in a way that's much more under the microscope. DC films have to really, really stand out. And I'm not sure that this one's going to do that. I mean, looking at things maybe like rose-colored glasses, a little bit too hopeful. You know, this has something that Blue Beetle, The Flash, the Shazam sequel didn't, which is James Wan at the helm, a director who has a reputation outside of the DC comic universe. I mean, maybe, hopefully, fingers crossed, the film, (laughs) uh, you know, starts screening and it gets good reviews. And that leads to um, a strong performance throughout Q1 next year. It'll definitely be more about the legs because, you know, that weekend, Christmas Eve lands on Sunday. It's already going to have a depressed opening weekend because usually movies drop 50% on Christmas Eve, no matter what day of the week it is. So we'll have to see beyond just that opening weekend. Maybe word of mouth is positive for it, but it's also hard to discount, you know, everything else kind of working against it. And the fact that it's a movie that is really opening in limbo for DC. It's not a movie that seems to have much to do with anything about their future. We'll see uh, in a few weeks whether the DC universe in its now departed incarnation dies uh, with a bang (laughs) or with a whimper. (laughs) 
uh, Sean and Chad, thank you uh, so much as always for joining us. And after this short break, we will be hearing from Frank Rodriguez, currently at Apple, but uh, formerly at the time this interview was conducted, head of distribution at Searchlight Pictures, which is coming out this weekend in limited release with Poor Things starring Emma Stone. Be right back. Frank, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. I, I want to start by asking, you have an interesting career in the sense that you were there at the uh, very beginning when Searchlight Pictures was formed, and then later on you come back in as the head of distribution. It's such an iconic brand. Can you talk a bit about those early years with Searchlight? I didn't know that you knew I was there at that point, because I, I was there the first two years of basically the inception. Uh, Tom Rothman was... Uh, given the, the task of putting together a team to start to release these specialty films, which were going to be a big part of, you know, 20th Century Fox. So I was with 20th Century Fox in New York. I was handling the New York Territory, and they asked me to move over to Searchlight at its very, very beginning because I had a, a background in film, in film criticism, that's my, you know, I'd always been into film studies in college and stuff, and I really loved that type of film. Mm -hmm. And obviously with 20th Century Fox, I had worked with the big films, you know, Die Hard, Big, and all those kinds of films, Speed, things like that. And one thing you may not know, during the late 80s, there was a, a small segment of 20th Century Fox that was called TLC, Tender Loving Care. It was a division which concentrated on art films. And mention it because I don't think many people know about it, but we had a number of films, one of which was an incredible film called The Gods Must Be Crazy. You're probably way too young to remember that. Oh, no, that. yeah. I, I remember seeing, uh, that just brings to mind, it's one of the DHS covers then, I guess. I would always see it blockbuster. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so a young man at the time, Carrie Jones, who you may or may not know, he's been in a lot of different pieces in this business. I think he's basically retired now, but he headed it up and I was given an opportunity to work on those types of films. I only mention that because it's kind of the prelude to, to them saying, okay, well, you know, we want you to move over to this division and you can handle the East Coast from it. And it worked well because our first film, Brothers McMullen, was a very, very East Coast-centric film. I mean, I needed to work on dates in Long Island and in the Hamptons and in, and in Nassau County and in Connecticut and Jersey because that's where that film kind of took mm -hmm. place. So anyway, that was those were the early days. And I can remember that even in those days, those early films, we still concentrated on what we still concentrate on today, dealing with the very best filmmakers that we can. In, in recent history, obviously, we've gotten Guillermo del Toro and Wes Anderson and Yorgos Lanzimos and filmmakers like that. And early on, in the early days, we did films by Spike Lee, by Bernardo Bertolucci, and Ang Lee. We had the ice storm with Ang Lee. These are all early, early films. And so the early days, I want to say it was tougher, but it really, in a way, wasn't because now the specialty market is seems to be so challenged from what it used to be. The more mature cinephile audience, I think what's happened is that they found themselves being able to sit in their homes and, and find these films, and it's kind of a, a self-fulfilling prophecy when distributors decide, eh, you know what, 
they're not going to come anyway. Let's just put it on. Let's put it on the streaming platform, and that's okay because the platforms need to survive as well. And there's a business there, and I'm, uh, my friends at Amazon and Netflix and Apple and all these companies, I can understand where they're coming from. But mm-hmm. listen, my love has always been cinema and the theaters, and and I don't mean this in a derogatory way, but if you sit in your home and watch a film, it's great and it's adorable, but it is not cinema. How have you found? Getting those films on the big screen, I mean, you take something like The Menu, I mean, that was obviously very successful, like you you mentioned, with how you, you know, you release it, you kind of get it out there piece by piece. How difficult is it now to release a specialty film like that in theaters and have it catch on and find its audience? Well, uh, something like the menu it was a little bit different because what we did with the menu is we went out all at once. The menu happened to be the largest, widest release oh, okay. that Searchlight has ever opened. We opened at 3,100 runs, 3,100. It's the biggest release oh, we've wow. ever had of a film. And we just did it all at once because we, you know, and, and it's interesting because we screened it at Show East. And the response at Show East was so great from so many different avenues from some of the more specialty houses that were there. I got great reviews from AMC and Cinemark and Regal. They were like, oh my God, that film is so wacky. Oh my God, my audience is going to love that. And so from people like Malco or people from the South and people from the Midwest and people, of course, from the East and the West and the Northeast and the Northwest, they all loved it. So it's Mm -hmm. like, wow, we want to play that movie. It's just crazy. We have an upcoming film called Poor Things, Mm -hmm. uh, Yorgos uh, Lafimos. We're going to go platform, you know, platform. We're going to go in New York, LA, San Francisco, and then the next week we'll add a bunch of runs, and then the following week on the 22nd, the third week we'll probably go fairly wide on the picture, but I don't, it's never going to be like 3,000 runs. It's probably going to uh, go like, you know, 10 runs, and then maybe 250 runs, and then maybe somewhere between 800 and 1,200 runs for the third week, because it, it is especially film. It's a bit narrower than something like the menu, and certainly more narrow than a than a film like Next Go Wins or any other commercial film. While we hope it's commercial in, in that aspect and that it makes money, it really is a really a what's the word? It's like a fine fine wine. It, it, it's <laughs> it's something to be appreciated, but it's not going to be for everybody. I mean, Emma Stone is tremendous in the film. She does a great job, and my colleagues would tell me, Frank, don't say this, but I really do think that she could get nominated for a, a Best Actress nomination because it's, mm-hmm. you're seeing, you're going to see Emma Stone like you have never seen her before. So let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. And, and, well, and it's yeah. beautiful to look at it. And it belongs on a big screen because it's so visual. Mm-hmm. It's so big. So well, I mean, Olivia Coleman, we'll uh, she got Best Actress for Yorgos, and that was, I mean, that was not your typical costume drama biopic type of Which film. Which favorite? But I guess the important thing is, you know, you're not going to put it in theaters and then say, oh, well, and, and two weeks later it pops up on Hulu. You look at a film like The Favorite with Olivia Coleman or something like yeah. Parasite, like that would not have had the success it had 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 it not been given the time to find its audience. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. That's, uh, that's very astute because – and that's the same thing. And I will tell you this much. We at Searchlight, we a long time ago adopted a, a, a – uh, we made a decision to let our films stay in theaters as long as we can. So we were at we were at 45 days throughout much the later part of the pandemic. But when we decide to go theatrical, we go. 
And we go into theaters because we love going into theaters. And we know that audiences, I do think this, I am honestly of the belief that if an audience sees that a film is being held out away from its streaming service, that they believe, wow, this studio must really believe in this film if they're going to hold it out that long. And it's mm -hmm. true. That's how we do feel about our film. So, yeah, poor things, I'm really, really happy about that film. Very, We're very proud of that film. It's a unique and brave story. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, now, like that a, little chuckle just needs even more curious. To yeah, see well, it. it's kind of a strange take on the on the Frankenstein story. Willem Dafoe is uh, is just incredible, and it's so is Mark Ruffalo. But it just uh, it lends itself. You better have a liberal view of things because there, there's a lot of liberties taken in the film. And uh, listen, he's a filmmaker with a vision, and this is what he wants to do, and he he doesn't spare anybody in it, and he. This is how he wants to make the film. And being from us, we can't tell him how to make a film. It's like someone telling, I don't want to, you know, you didn't tell Picasso when he started with his cubist, you know, his cubist art. Mm -hmm. You say, oh, you know what? You can't do that. You have to make circles when you make pictures of people and stuff, you know. So <laughs> it's like you want you want to make a movie where Colin Farrell plays like a, a kind of sad sack and people turn into animals. Like that's never gonna hit. <laughs> you just gotta let him go. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, so. Yeah. By the way, this film is a little closer to Lobster than, than other films, too. So then certainly than the favorite. The favorite is going – the favorite seems like a G-rated nursery rhyme when compared to this. Yes, I can't wait. Do yeah, you, well, good. I always like asking this, this question because in addition to being a, a movie nerd, obviously I love cinemas. What was your cinema that you went to when you were growing up? Oh, my God. I grew up in a little town in California called the Santa Maria Theater. And there was a f one first-run screen. It was called the Santa Maria Theater. And then there was another theater called the Studio that was the move-over house. And I typically went to the move-over house because they would have crazy films. And I think the very first film I remember seeing, boy, this is going to date me, was The Raven uh, with Vincent Price. And, but, of course, Was I that one of the Cormans? Like the, that wasn't one of the, the Cormans, was it? Uh, no, this was this was probably before okay. them, but maybe not. I'm not sure, but it was really crazy. It was scary. I can remember being scared, but then my mom always took me. My mother took me to the classic films after school. They would show like uh, Salt of the Earth and, mm -hmm. you know, Gulliver's Travels and A Tale of Two Cities. They would show these like black and white films right after school, like matinees or like two in the afternoon. My mother would pick me up from school. We'd walk right to the theater because it was all very, very near. My mother was a housewife at the time. And I saw these really great stories. And of course, all those big epic biblical features like you know the greatest story ever told and stuff like that i can mm -hmm. remember seeing those and being impressed by all that but i think the one film that changed my view of films and what they could really do was when i as a, at a very young age i saw in cold blood Ooh. Uh, i don't know how i happened to get in there i probably shouldn't have yeah how young how young we talking i kind of stuck in <laughs> at some matinee and i saw in cold blood i said oh my god look at this stuff this is creepy and but it's so effective, and uh, you know, listen, it really is true. You, you know, you kind of lose yourself. You lose yourself in movies when you're, at, especially at that younger age. You really, you know, you have to. 
you get lost inside of it. But anyway, that was the theater, the Santa Maria Theater and the studio. And then, of course, there was drive-ins, uh, two drive-ins in our hometown that were very active and played a lot of first run, and my parents would always take us uh, mm-hmm. uh, to the drive-ins as well. It's like your pre-film school film school. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's funny because you, there was a distinct difference between what you were going to look at at t- television at home and what was going to happen at the cinema, at mm-hmm. the theater, you know, it's just, wow, you just knew it. And really, nowadays, it's like my kids, their teens, they will go, they will go to the theater. And they love going to the movies and stuff, but they see stuff and they, you know, they have no issue looking at every single, you know, one of like Grey's Anatomy or the Gilmore Girls or something like that. They, mm-hmm. they will sit and binge. And so I know they love the stories and stuff. But I just don't think they see the delineation like we used to or Mm -hmm. I used to between cinema and home because Mm -hmm. everything is so available now. It used to be you would never see a film, you know, take a year or so before you'd ever see it on television Mm -hmm. or even longer. Now, you know, you you can do it day and day. You can see the film like immediately pretty much Mm -hmm. or at least after 50 or 60 days. I think that that's still there's definitely still a delineation in a lot of cases. So with films like The Irishman and stuff, even the, the theatrical, you know, even the streamers recognize the value of going on the big screen before they... Uh... Exactly. That's a good point. And when you see Netflix, they, they, Netflix did it with Roma. If you remember uh, mm-hmm. Quaron's film the year before, they, they did that. And, and that really, that you know, people who went and saw that on a big screen, I mean, had to be impressed. And although that story... You know, it was a black and white film about a family, and you, you really could understand everything that you had to understand if you watched yeah. it on, on a TV screen. But the fact that it was there, it made it seem, wow, this is a bigger thing. It's in the Harkins Theater in Phoenix. Wow, look at that. You know, you're absolutely right. They've done a very good job with their prestige films. They've gotten them out there. They've shown audiences that these belong on the big screen, but their bread and butter is home viewing, so, you know, mm-hmm. they're also going to lean into that. So uh, mm-hmm. it's just a... You know, Rebecca, it's an interesting time when you think of all the different companies and what they're doing. And, you know, some have a 14-day window, 17-day window. I'm proud that, that we decided to go at minimum 45. And listen, we did do a couple, two films, I think, day and date. I think Summer of Soul, which was a, won a documentary Oscar for us a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. We did play that day and date. We had it in theaters and we had it on small screen and it was very successful for us. And, it served as a way to a reminder of a way you could release us of that. When we did Nomad Land a few years ago, I don't know if you know this, but here's a good one for you. Nomad Land, as you know, won the Academy Award at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. She won Best Director, Chloe Zhao. Frances McDormand won Best Actress. You know how we opened that film? We opened it in seven IMAX auditoriums in late oh. January of 2021. And there was two reasons, and I'm going to take a little bit of credit for this. We decided we wanted the cinematographer nominated, so we figured you better put it on the biggest screen you can. It was beautiful. Time, I mean, those I'm, vistas, it's so... I, exactly, exactly. And, and IMAX didn't have anything at the time. At that particular time, they were kind of, they were like, hey, we got nothing. Let's jointly decide to put this out. And the other part of it was, we knew that press and academy members would want to see it on a bigger screen, mm-hmm. but more importantly, in those giant auditoriums, audience members decided to come in smaller numbers, but because they could sit far away from each other and you didn't have to be right next to each mm-hmm. other, it really served to bring a few of those people in. Now, 
We didn't have a huge financial success on that. We did okay internationally, but I think we only grossed 3.8 million on it. Of course, the, the but, but the, clearly the it worked with the prestige of the film with the with the word amount. Yeah, we got six nominations and we won the three biggest director, actress, and it won best picture. So that's one thing that Searchlight has always been most successful at you know it's kind of like that we have a credo over there you know we want to make as much money as we can and we're very happy when our films work and they have worked in the past we have a few hundred million dollar films in our vault but the truth is our business is winning awards and over the past 12 years business has been very very good for us i think we've been nominated i believe it's 18 out of the last 20 years we've had a best picture nomination and we've won five times in the last 13 years Including somebody with Slump Dog Millionaire and 12 Years a Slave, Birdman, Shape of Water, and then No Man Land. So we've done very well with that. And I think that's one of our, the main crux of our companies to work with the very best filmmakers you can, tell the best stories you can, and really lean into awards, which we do. Thank you, as always, for tuning into this episode of the Box Office Podcast, which is co-produced by Box Office Pro, the Box Office Company, and Record Edit Podcast. Please tune in next Thursday for our latest episode.